The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Am I broadcasting here? Try again, Ben. Let's just see. Testing, 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 testing. There I am. All right, we're on the same frequency. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to restore all things in your well-beloved Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, mercifully grant that the peoples of the earth, divided and enslaved by sin, may be freed and brought together under his most gracious rule, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. If you have your Bibles, open them please today to Matthew chapter 5. And we are going to begin at verse 17 and read through verse 20. This, of course, is Jesus speaking. And he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will in any way pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the story of Martin Luther. On October the 31st, 1517, Martin Luther, who was an Augustinian monk in the medieval church, went to the door of the cathedral church in Wittenberg, the castle church, and he nailed 95 complaints. That's probably the best way to describe them. Historians refer to them as the theses, 95 theses, but 95 complaints that he had against the teaching of the medieval church, he nailed those to the door. And generally that is regarded as the beginning of a great movement, a movement that we've properly referred to as the Protestant Reformation. A Protestant, it's an interesting word, uh, oftentimes we think it is protest, uh, that he was protesting the abuses of the medieval church, and that certainly is the case. In Latin, actually, uh, the word is protestare, which means for the truth, and that's probably the way Martin Luther would have seen it. Uh, he was indeed uh, objecting to the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, one in particular, the selling of indulgences, but he was also, he believed, defending the truth of the Scriptures. And that great reformation would eventually become a revolution, a revolution that would spread throughout all of Europe, uh, eventually hopping over the English Channel and making its way to England, and you and I are heirs of that great tradition. The Reformation was somewhat different in England than it was on the continent, but nevertheless, the hallmarks of that great movement were part of our heritage as Anglicans. And two of the great battle cries of that great Reformation were sola gratia and sola fide. There were a whole series of solas, Onlys, uh, but two of the most famous, and the ones that I think in many respects the Reformation is known for, in addition to sola scriptura, are sola gratia and sola fide. 
Basically, what Martin Luther was arguing was that the medieval church got it wrong. The medieval church was basically teaching that salvation was something that you and I earn uh, by virtue of our good works. And Luther's own life had taught him that that was simply impossible. Uh, Luther had become a monk as the result of an accident. Uh, he had been raised in a devout home, but he had trained for the law. That's what his father wanted him to do. And the story goes that one night he was riding and he got caught in a terrible rainstorm. Lightning struck nearby. Uh, he was hit. Uh, he fell into a ditch that was quickly filling with water and he was temporarily paralyzed. And he really thought that he was going to drown. And uh, you know what they say, there are no atheists in foxholes. And uh, he made a promise to God. Sometimes we do that, don't we? Oh, Lord, if you just get me out of this fix. Well, you've got to be careful when you make those kinds of promises to God. And he made a promise. He prayed to St. Anne and he said, if you save me, I'll become a monk. And he did. Uh, you know, oftentimes we make those promises and then when the crisis is past, we forget all about it. That was not the case with Luther. He kept his promise and he decided that if he was going to be a monk, he was going to be the best monk possible. And so he joined the strictest order in the church at that time, the Augustinians. And throughout his time as a monk, he did his best to follow all the rules, all of the regulations. He prayed the prayers, he read the scriptures, but somehow he had a deep sense of unworthiness. No matter how hard he tried, he just did not feel that he could ever come into the favor of God. There was always some sort of impediment there. On one occasion, he had been at Mass where they had the confession and he'd received the absolution, and as he was walking out the back door, he took the celebrant by the hand and he said, you have to listen to my confession. And the celebrant looked at him and said, Martin, what could you possibly have done over the course of the past 15, 20 minutes between the confession and absolution and the end of the Mass that you need to confess anything? And Luther's response was, you just don't know my mind. You just don't know what's going on in my heart. And so the message of the Scriptures didn't bring him joy, it didn't bring him hope, it brought him absolute despair. Until one night he was reading through the first chapter of Romans and he came across this marvelous passage that says, the just shall live by faith. And he came to realize that's how you are justified in the sight of God. It's not by virtue of anything we do, it's by faith. It's by trust. Trust in what? In the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Everything that needed to be done on your behalf and mine, to assuage the anger of a righteous and holy God was accomplished by Jesus Christ on Calvary. That is the great promise. And Luther came to the realization that we are saved by grace, by God's undeserved and unearned favor. And that is received how? Only by faith. Sola gratia, only grace. Sola fide, only by faith. And he called that the doctrine of the standing church. He said the church stands or it falls on that great truth. Now, I don't think Luther was making that up. I think he had hit upon something that the early believers understood, but the medieval church, I think, had lost sight of, and he was right to complain against it. Now, this is the great teaching in many respects of the New Testament. Keep your fingers there in Matthew and turn, if you will, to Galatians for just a minute. We're not even going to look at Romans right away. We're going to take a look at Galatians 
The Galatian church was founded, if you were here on the study on Acts, the Galatian churches, I should say, were founded during Paul's first missionary journey. When he had traveled around with Barnabas, uh, they traveled around, they went down from Antioch and Syria down to the coast to Seleucia, they took a boat over to the Isle of Cyprus, then they went up to the continent, they went into Iconium, to Lystra, and to Derbe, to Pisidia, Antioch, all of those places, preaching the gospel. And this really was the message that Paul was preaching, that we are not in a right relationship with God. The only means by which we can come into a right relationship with God is by God's undeserved, unearned favor received in faith. The grace of God extended to us in the kindness of Jesus Christ. That was the great message that Paul proclaimed. But sometime later, it came to him that the Galatian churches were falling away from that great truth. That there were some people that had come from Jerusalem. Paul refers to them as the Judaizers who were advocating that you could become a Christian, but you first had to submit to all of the rules and the regulations of the law. And in particular, that meant you had to be circumcised. So if you want to become a Christian, you have to first become a Jew. And to become a Jew meant that you needed to keep all of the laws, all the restrictions, all the kosher laws, etc. And Paul wrote this epistle to the Galatians to remind them that that was not true. In fact, if you look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul speaks in strong language. Can you imagine somebody climbing into the pulpit at St. Philip's Church and saying what Paul says to the Galatians? Oh, you foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you? I'm going to try that sometime here at St. Philip's. Uh, when I know I'm coming to the end of my tenure, <laughs> I'll climb up there and say that sort of thing. That's a rather bold thing to say. But Paul believed that the Galatians had indeed been bewitched because they were falling away from the truth. And what was that truth? Chapter 2, verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That's why he said they were foolish. It's because they had forgotten that. They were submitting again to all the rules and the regulations. And he comes back to it in chapter 3, verse 10. He says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Paul's point is very simple. He says, if you want to be justified by the works of the law, fine. But you've got to keep all the works of the law. You've got to keep every rule, every regulation, and you've got to keep it perfectly. So if that's how you want to be saved, go at it. How many of you have ever tried that? Nobody's ever tried to keep the law? You foolish St. Philippians, you should be keeping the law. Nobody's ever tried to keep the Ten Commandments? I got a bigger problem than I thought if you've never tried to keep the Ten Commandments. We've all tried, but how many of you have broken the Ten Commandments? Ah, there you go. You see, you can't break them unless you try. That's Paul's whole point. If you're, if, you're, if you're trying to be saved by works of the law, then you really are under a curse because nobody can do it. Nobody's ever done it except for one. 
And so Paul is saying, don't let anyone bewitch you. You're never going to be saved. You're never going to be justified. Come into a right relationship with God by works of the law. It simply can't be done. Paul says something very similar to this in the epistle to the Romans. These are important passages. If you like to take notes in your Bible or highlight, these are good passages for you to highlight, especially when you feel as though you're unworthy, as though you can never be accepted in the eyes of the Lord, as though you've really failed, you've failed miserably. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. He said, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes not righteousness, but he says, the knowledge of sin. So Martin Luther was right. And Martin Luther wasn't right because Martin Luther was a brilliant theologian. Martin Luther was right because he understood what the Apostle Paul was teaching. That none of us is ever going to be saved by works of the law. It is only by grace, God's undeserved, unearned favor, and it is only by being received through the conduit of faith. But going back now to Matthew, that nevertheless does raise a serious question, though. Does that mean that the law has no place whatsoever in the Christian life? Because Jesus seems to suggest here in the Sermon on the Mount that the law does. Here's what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments. He doesn't say it's important to keep the big ones, and the little ones, well, I grade on a curve. That's not what he says. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of God. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of God. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. So what is it? Do we have to keep the law? Or are we saved by grace? Are Jesus and Paul somehow in conflict here? Well, the obvious answer, of course, is no, not at all. Jesus' point is that the law still does have a function. The law still has a place in our life as Christians. Simply because we cannot be saved by it does not mean that the law has no value. Now, this is what some people have suggested over the years. They're sometimes referred to as antinomians. The law is no binding influence on our lives whatsoever. You can live any way you want because you're not saved by means of the law. But that is not what Jesus teaches. I think it is a corruption of what Paul teaches. It is not what James in his epistle teaches, although Martin Luther didn't particularly like the epistle to James. But that's another story. When Jesus says not one jot nor one tittle will in any wise pass from the law and that we cannot relax even the least of the laws, what does he mean? What is he saying about the law? I think he's saying a number of things that the law still does in your life and mine. It may not be able to save us, but the law does do, the law does do this. Number one, it expresses God's character and his will for our lives. What you see in the law of God, and for our purposes, let's just say the Ten Commandments today, what you see in those Ten Commandments is what God is like and what God desires for His people. So we see the character of God there. You've heard me say this before. 
The one adjective that is used more than any other in Scripture to describe God is what? Thank you. Good answer. It was not a rhetorical question. I was asking. That's right. It is holy. Now, we have a tendency to emphasize the love of God, and rightly so. The New Testament says God is love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says, Now abide faith, hope, and love, but the three of these, the greatest of these is what? Love. So there's no question about that God is love. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. So there is that aspect. God is a God of love, but God is also a God of justice. We say that every Sunday when we stand up and we profess the words of the creed. What do we say? And we believe that He will come again to judge the quick and the dead. God is going to set this broken, fallen world right. If you were here at the Wednesday service last night, you heard Ryan preach on a parable of judgment. Isn't that what John the Baptist said at the beginning of this gospel? Repent. Why? Because the King has come. The kingdom of God has arrived. Now is the time to repent. A new sheriff's in town. So God is a God of judgment. And who wants to live in a world in which there's no justice? On the other hand, God is also a God of love, and I think that's why the adjective holy is the one that is used more than anything else. Because God is not just love, He is not God just justice, He is all of those things. He is in a category all Himself. He is the Holy One. Holiness is an important thing, folks. It's what we were saved for. We were saved from something, from sin and death and judgment and hell and wrath, but we've also been saved for something. Isn't that what Paul says in Ephesians 2? For good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what does the law show us? The law shows us the character of God, what God longs for in His people. He longs them for them to be like Him. He longs for them to be holy. And holiness is depicted for us powerfully in the law. The law does something else, however. The law teaches us the character of man. It shows us how tragically short we fall of the character of God, doesn't it? You know, the Ten Commandments, just the Ten Commandments. How often do we keep it? Thou shalt not lie. Now, that's pretty straightforward. Thou shalt not lie. How many of you have never lied? Even George Washington. Even George Washington, regardless of what they said, told a lie. None of us have never. Now, of course, we justify it. And we say, well, it was just a little white lie. As though there's such a thing as a harmless lie, a harmless untruth. By the way, that's the way we put it now. We, we don't call it a lie. We call it an untruth. Uh, some years ago, we ordered a piece of furniture, and we had to pay for it up front. We ordered it from Ethan Allen. It was uh, something for one of the kids' bedrooms. And it was a lot of money, and we waited for it, and they told us it would arrive on a certain date, and it never arrived. And we paid for it, never came. So, of course, I called the company, and they said, well, uh, it'll be there. Um, it's in production. It should be there in about uh, another month. So we waited another month. And what? It, it never showed up. 
And I'm, I'm getting a little hot by this point. Uh, you know, we, we're going to have to make other arrangements. And then I try to get the money back. And they're not, you can't get the money back. It's already in production. Well, when is it going to be here? Well, we hope it'll be here within the next six months. So, whoa, 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 whoa. So I got into a debate with this lady. And I said, now, let me tell you. I, I've been writing this down on such and such a date. You told me it'd be here. Then you told me another day, such and such a date. And she said, well, I didn't talk to you, sir. I said, well, whoever did. I said, you're the supervisor. This person told me. And she said, well, he shouldn't have told you that. I said, well, he did tell you. And she said, well, he told you an untruth. <laughs> At which point I said, well, I don't know where you're from, ma'am. But where I come from, we call that a lie. <laughs> untruth? We call that a lie. See, we've all lied at one point or another in our lives, whether we consider it large or small. Let me tell you, the wages of sin is death. And it doesn't matter how large or how small the sin is, the penalty for it is death. Somebody says, well, it's a little sin. It's a little lie. It's not a big deal. Let me show you, if I can, for just a moment, how sin corrupts. Some years ago, there was an outbreak of botulism in a batch of canned vichyssoise soup. Now, if you know anything about botulism, it's deadly. So let me ask you a question. If you knew that you had a can of that vichyssoise soup in your pantry and you decided you were going to eat some of it today, but you'd read in the newspaper that a batch of it had been contaminated, would you take the risk? What if I told you Yes, but there's only a little bit of botulism in your can of vichyssoise soup. Not, not a whole lot, just, just, a, just a wee bit. Would you eat it? Why? Because it doesn't matter if it's a lot or it's a little. It's what? It's deadly. So let me ask you this question. How rotten is rotten meat? It's rotten. That's the way it is, you see, with sin. It may seem like a little thing, but no matter what the amount may be, it's deadly. And so what the law does is the law functions, you see, as a mirror. That's what the law does. You try to keep the law, and the law shows you for what you really are. A failure in terms of trying to earn your salvation before God. So it tells you what God is like. It reveals what we are like. But then the law does something else. What else does the law do? The law teaches us the character of salvation. I said the law is like a mirror. A mirror, my friends, will tell you that your face is dirty. But it can't clean you. The only thing that a mirror can do is what? Drive you to this open water. And that is what the law of God is meant to do. It is meant to show us the holiness of God. It is meant to show us the unworthiness of human beings. And it is meant then to drive us to the only one who can cleanse us, Jesus Christ. So that is how the law functions. Now, there's more to it than that, because once we've been cleansed by Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us, and He gives us the power for the first time to actually begin to keep the law. 
But until the Holy Spirit resides within us, folks, we haven't the power to do it ourselves. And Jesus is saying the law still has a force, it still has a power in our lives. So at the very least, the law is a very good diagnostic tool. It shows us whether or not we are living in accordance with God's will for our lives. That's why I say that the Sermon on the Mount, and we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. You can get my lecture on the Sermon on the Mount. But that's why I say the Sermon on the Mount is not prescriptive. These few chapters in Matthew's Gospel are not telling us if you live like this, you will become a citizen of the kingdom of God. It is not prescriptive, it is descriptive. It is saying if you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, this is how you are living. And so we are to take our lives and put them over and against the Sermon on the Mount and the ethic that Jesus describes here and by that comparison see whether or not we are living in accordance with God's will for us. Now, have you ever tried that? I mean, be honest with you. Just look at the sermon on the, the opening, the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn for their sin. That means not just being sorry, acknowledging, but bewailing. Blessed are the meek. Well, the last thing in the world that we want to be is meek. We are told to be proud. As I pointed out some weeks ago, we even have pride parades. We're proud about everything. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Most of the time we're hungering and thirsting for something besides righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. That's the one that kills me. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. We live in a time in which we want to avoid pain, don't we? If it feels good, do it. If it feels bad, avoid it. That, that, that's the way we operate. And Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. In fact, he says, blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Who wants anyone to revile you, to persecute you, or utter all kinds of evil against you falsely? Oftentimes, we will do everything in our power to avoid that. See, when we take our lives and we overlay them on the Sermon on the Mount, what we realize is that we are not living up to God's standard. When we take a look in the mirror, the reality is we don't like what we see. It's like that picture of Dorian Gray. You've all read the book, you know it, I've used it as an illustration before. Story about a man who sells his soul to the devil. He has a beautiful portrait, he's a young man, handsome, he has this portrait done. The portrait is so magnificent that he falls in love with himself, a, a modern day narcissus. And he makes a pact with the devil that he will remain forever young. And he does. He remains forever young, that's the price, but the price is his soul. And as a consequence, Dorian Gray begins to do terrible things. It's a downhill spiral. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul describes in Romans chapter 1. And he goes from bad to worse. He abuses people. He manipulates people. He's a wicked man. And yet he never ages, which is a rather creepy thing for those around him. They can't understand what's going on. You know, it's sort of like Casey Kasem or somebody like that. They never seem to, you know, who was the other guy? Dick Clark. Dick Clark never, never aged. There was something about him. 
But while he didn't age, with each successive sin that Dorian did in his life, the portrait aged. The portrait revealed the true self. And what did Dorian do? There came a time when he could no longer look at the portrait, and so he placed a cloak over it so he would not have to look at himself for what he really was. And he went around, and everybody else saw him one way, but he was able to see himself for what he really was. We don't want to see ourselves for what we really are, so what do we do? We cloak the painting. And we put on this mask of respectability and we try to live our lives. Well, I hate to say it, but that is exactly what many of the Jewish religious leaders tried to do in Jesus' day. They knew that they didn't keep the law perfectly, and so they did everything in their power to get around it. And this was particularly true, not so much of the Sadducees, but certainly true of the scribes and the Pharisees. Oh, they believed in the law. By the way, we, we, we give the Pharisees a bad rap, but I want you to know they were the conservatives of their day. They, they were the fundamentalists, the evangelicals of their day. They're not the liberal church. Well, that's the Sadducees. They're the mainline churches. But the Pharisees, oh my goodness, they were the people that really took the law seriously. But they knew that they didn't measure up. And as a result, they tried to get around all the rules and all the regulations. And we try to get around the rules and the regulations. We, we come up with loopholes as to why. As I said, yes, I know it was a lie, but it was a little white lie. <laughs> See, we, we try to find the loophole, the escape valve, if we can. And that's exactly what the Jewish religious leaders did. So, for example, the law stated very clearly, remember to keep holy the Sabbath day. Sabbath day was what? Saturday. It was the, 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 the day on which God rested in the book of Genesis, and it was to be a day of rest. You were to do no work whatsoever. All your meals would be prepared the day before so that you didn't have to do any work, and everything had to be done before. No work whatsoever. And they were strict about this, but the stricter they were, the more they found that it was difficult to keep the law, really keep the law. I mean, if the law said no work, that meant no work. You, you couldn't carry a burden on the Sabbath, the Pharisees said. And when they meant a burden, they meant anything. So, for example, you couldn't even pick up a scarf if you'd left it out the night before and put it away in a drawer because you were not allowed to carry a burden. And, and carrying that scarf from one room to another was a burden. However, they came up with a loophole. And the loophole was this. If you put the scarf on, it no longer was a burden. It was an article of clothing. And then you could travel to another part of the house, take the scarf off, put it in the drawer, and you had not violated the Sabbath regulations. Now, here's another one. And you think I'm exaggerating. This is all true. It's in the rabbinic writings. Here's another one. You were not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath day. Jesus was oftentimes accused of healing people on the Sabbath. It got him into trouble with the Pharisees. So, for example, you were not supposed to do any plowing. This was an agrarian culture. Any plowing on the Sabbath. Now, if a man spit on the ground and it made a furrow in the dust, the Pharisees said, that was work. You've made a furrow in the ground. That's plowing with your spit. I kid you not. They had rules and regulations about all of these things. However, they said, if you spit and it lands on a rock and it doesn't make a furrow, you've not violated the Sabbath. You were only supposed to travel so far on the Sabbath. A Sabbath... 
day distances is how far you were allowed to go, and they had regulations about how far you were supposed to go. And that meant you were allowed to go so far on the Sabbath day beyond the edge of your house. But what they decided to do is on the night before the Sabbath, they would tie a rope from one end of town to the other end, and they said that sort of combined all of the houses into one, and so your whole town was your house, and you could go not just beyond your own door, but beyond this far beyond your town or your community. So they had all these rules and all these regulations, and this is why Jesus complained against the Pharisees. He said, you tie up all these heavy burdens on people's shoulders, these great burdens which you yourself are not even capable of keeping, and you will not lift a finger to help anybody else. And Jesus said, you hypocrites, you whited sepulchers, you whitewashed tombs. So what is Jesus getting at here in the Sermon on the Mount? What Jesus is getting at here in the Sermon on the Mount is that God is interested not simply in what we do, God is interested in why we do it. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God is concerned with something on the inside. There's a very powerful story about this in 1 Samuel chapter 16. You know the story. It's the anointing of King David as king over Israel. You know that Israel had a king. Its first king was Saul. Saul did pretty well at the beginning, but he fell out of favor with God. God rejected Saul and decided to choose a new king. And he told the prophet Samuel to go to the town of Jesse, Bethlehem, and to anoint one of Jesse's sons as the new king over the nation. Now, Samuel didn't want to go. He still had a great deal of compassion and affection for Saul, but the Lord said, stop mourning for Saul. I've rejected him. Now, your job as is the, is the, is the prophet is to go and do what I tell you. So go there and anoint one of Jesse's sons. So Samuel goes, but he goes reluctantly. And when he gets to Bethlehem and he goes to Jesse's house, he said, do you have a son? And the answer he gets is, oh, I have several sons. Now, Samuel had a preconceived notion as to what he thought the king ought to be like. You know, you know what a king ought to be like. Kings ought to be impressive figures, you know, handsome, strong. That's the way it was in the ancient world. Saul picked fit all those pictures. So he assumed the new king would be even more impressive. And so Jesse had his first son come out in front. Impressive, strong, handsome, intelligent. And Samuel rises up, getting ready to anoint him as the king, and the Lord said, nope, not the one. Okay, do you have another son? Sure do. Second son comes in, he's impressive. Not as impressive as the first, but he's impressive. He's strong, he's handsome, he's intelligent. Samuel gets ready to anoint him, the Lord said, no, not him. They go through all of Jesse's sons, and the Lord rejects them all. And finally, Samuel, in exasperation, turns to Jesse, and he said, Is this it? And the Lord said, Well, uh, Jesse says, Well, there there is another. But he's only a boy, and, and he's out caring for the sheep. And Samuel says, Well, go get him. We're not going to sit down until you go and get him. So they send for him, and the boy comes in. He's the youngest. He's got a ruddy complexion. And the Lord speaks to Samuel and said, this is the one. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You see, the world is concerned with our outward appearance, how we appear respectable, upright, pillars of the community. But God is more concerned with our hearts. God is concerned with pulling off that drape seeing us for what we really are, and transforming us. And that is really what this section, this next section of the Sermon on the Mount, 
is all about. It is a matter of the heart. God wants to see what's going on on the inside. So look at verse 21 and following. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and ye be put into prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let her write her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual Immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take any oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs for you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brethren, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. powerful, isn't it? Jesus is saying, you think you've kept the law. Outwardly, you appear to. You've never committed adultery. Good. How many of you men have ever walked up King Street past Victoria's Secret? (laughs) Show of hands. Adulterers, one and all, there you are. (laughs) It's not a matter, you see, of what it looks like on the outside. God knows what's going on in your heart. That's what was so convicting to poor Martin Luther. Martin, what could you have done in the last 15 or 20 minutes since the absolution? You do not know my heart. Somebody once said, a human being can be seen for what they really are, when they are able to do what they really want. 
Jesus said, I tell you the truth, <laughs> you may look okay from the outside, but I know what's going on in your heart. I know what you're thinking. Same thing for divorce. In Jesus' day, it was very easy to get a divorce, particularly for men. There were actually two schools of thought on this. There was the conservative school and there was the liberal school. The conservative school basically said you shouldn't get a divorce for any reason. The liberal school said you can get a divorce for any reason. Now, you have to remember, women didn't have many rights in first century society. They were better off in Judaism. Actually, it was Christianity that raised the level for women. Christianity transformed that, Jesus' concern and compassion for women. Anybody that teaches you or says to you, oh, Christianity keeps women in a, in a, in a, in a somehow a subordinate position, they, they really have never read the Gospels. In fact, if you go in to the majority of churches in Christendom, the Roman Catholic churches, for example, next to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one person that is exalted more highly than anybody else? A woman. It was Christianity that changed the status of women, you see. But in first century society, in Greco-Roman culture, and oftentimes in Jewish society, women didn't have a lot of rights or privileges. And the liberal school of thought said, hey, listen, if your wife burns your dinner, just give her a certificate of divorce and send her on her way. You think I'm exaggerating. That's exactly the way it was. And Jesus says, you think you've kept up with the law of Moses. Oh, it's true, Moses said that you could divorce, but he said that because of the hardness of your heart. It's not because that's what God intended or willed from the beginning. It's because you were so wicked and so corrupt. He said, I tell you the truth. Do not get divorced. And if you think that you are somehow free when you divorce a woman and send her off onto the street, you force her to commit adultery and you commit adultery. And he says, oh, you take these oaths. I swear by heaven, or I swear to God, or I swear on my mother's grave. You ever heard that sort of thing? But all the while, you're doing what? Keeping your fingers crossed. You have no intention of keeping those promises that you are making. Now, it may look impressive. Oh, it may be very impressive, especially when you're standing before a Senate hearing. But God knows, God knows what's going on in your heart. What about the right to retaliation? You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, love your enemies. Now this one is a very shocking one to us because if there's one thing we Americans believe in more than anything else, it's our rights. I stand on my rights. We are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. No one's going to deny me my rights. Jesus said to, says to us, he says, well, I understand that. But I say to you, give up your rights. Give up your rights. Your right to retaliation. Your right to leisure. Your right to things. I tell you, give up your right to hate, for that is what God has done for you. Now, this is shocking stuff. It's shocking stuff. It's compelling stuff. And that's why we need to understand what God is looking at is not simply what we're doing. He's looking at why we are doing it. Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Remember, there were no chapter divisions when this was originally written, so... What Jesus just finishes, that section goes immediately into this next. 
Matthew chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. But don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. But rather, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who sees in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. On January 24th, 1848, a man by the name of James Wilson Marshall was working at a sawmill in California. It was called Sutter's Mill. And in the morning, as he was doing his inspection of the sawmill, and of course sawmills had to have streams, a water source close by, as he was walking along the stream bed one day, he saw something glistening in the bottom of the water. And he reached down and he pulled up a clump of dirt and he found what he thought was a nugget of gold. A nugget of gold at Sutter's Mill in 1848. Now he wasn't sure. He, he was cautiously optimistic, but he knew that there was something called fool's gold. Geologists refer to it as iron pyrite. And it can appear to look like gold. And the question was, is this the genuine article or is this a cheap imitation? One, you see, was of infinite value. One was of no value really at all. Now, he knew this much about iron pyrite. If it is struck with something hard, it shatters. And he knew that genuine gold did not shatter. It was malleable. So what did he do? Well, James Marshall immediately went up to the mill, took that nugget in hand, and he placed it on an anvil, and he took an iron hammer, and he struck it. And to his glee, he discovered that it did not shatter. It was not iron pyrite. It was not fool's gold. It was the genuine article. And of course, that sparked the famous California gold rush. The miners, 49ers, they began to flee from all parts of the country out to California. Flooded that which was a territory at the time. So many people went there that they actually applied for stateship and they were included in the Union as a free state setting the stage, by the way, for the Civil War. 
but it was the genuine article. He had to test it. He had to see that it was the genuine article. That is what God wants us to do with our lives. It doesn't matter how other people see us on the outside. God looks on the inside. He wants to know if the faith that we profess is the genuine article. And part of the Sermon on the Mount, what he's doing here, and all these things that are so convicting, is he is placing us on the anvil, and he is striking us with the truth of his word and with his own character to see whether or not we are going to shatter like something that is a cheap imitation or whether we are malleable, capable of being molded into the image of his son. That's the power, you see, of the Sermon on the Mount. And that's why this next session is really a continuation of what Jesus has already said. He said, look at yourself, look at your lives. Don't tell me that you've never committed adultery. If you've looked at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery. So acknowledge that. And he said, it's just not a matter of doing the right things. I want you to do the right things for the right reasons. See, we don't, sometimes we don't care why anybody does it as long as they do it. But God is concerned not simply with what we do, but why we do it. He wants to know we're doing it for the right reason. Let me ask you this. By the way, men, February 14th is just around the corner. You know what that is? What's February 14th? Valentine's Day. So what are you men going to do for your Valentine? How many of you are going to make sure she at least gets a card? Okay. How many of you are going to maybe give her some candy? Flowers? Diamonds? <laughs> oh, Juanita, I saw your husband raise his hand so you could hold him to it. It's a, it's a public confession right there. Now let me ask you this question, women. If the only reason your husband gives you a card is because he knows he'll never hear the end of it if he doesn't, does that thrill your heart? Now, when it comes to diamonds, you may not care why he's giving it. It doesn't make a difference. But when it comes to cards or flowers or candy, if the only reason your husband gives you something is simply because he doesn't want to hear you complain, that is not a thrill to your heart, is it? On the other hand, if he gives to you, why? Because he genuinely loves you. Then it makes all the difference in the world. You see, one is a service of perfect freedom. One is a form of bondage. God wants us to serve. He wants us to do the right thing, but he wants us to do it for the right reasons. Doing the right thing for the wrong reasons may be pleasing to your spouse if she doesn't know any different, but God, because, as we've already seen, looks on the heart really knows our motivation. And what God is interested in is not just our actions, God is interested in our character. God is interested in our character. So we are to do, Jesus says, all the right things, but we are to do them for all the right reasons. Like giving to the poor. The Old Testament makes it very clear. Uh, keep your finger there in Matthew and turn back to the beginning of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. To Deuteronomy chapter 15. There are many other passages. You see them up there on the screen. But Deuteronomy chapter 15 is a good summation of what the other passages say. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11 says, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. 
Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. We are not to be indifferent to the plight of the underprivileged. We are to have concern for those who are less fortunate than ourselves. And the more money we have, the more privilege we have, the greater the responsibility. We are not to be indifferent to the plight of those who are less fortunate than we are. We are to open wide our hands and we are to be generous as Christian people. And don't look for the loophole. Well, I didn't want to give him any money because he'd probably just go and spend it on booze. Let God sort that out. That's not your place. We are to be generous for those who are less fortunate. But why do we give to the poor? You know, lots of people give to organizations, worthy organizations, but the question is, why do we do that? Do we do it because we want God to see that we are following His way, or do we do it because we want men to see what we are doing? This is the Aspen Institute. This is a think tank founded in the 1940s out in Colorado. And they're always looking for donors. You ever seen an organization like this? If you give $1,000, you're part of the Vanguard Club. Ah, but if you give $3,500, you're a part of the company of individual fellows. If you give $5,000, oh, that's the Aspen Leaf Society. And if you give $10,000, you're in the President's Society. And if you give $25,000, you're in the Chairman's Society. And if you give $50,000 or more, you're in the Gold Leaf Society. And guess what? We're going to publish what everybody gives. You ever been in an organization like that? And you look at that and you say, ooh, he gave how much? She gave how much? I want you to know, if you donate to organizations in this community, I look for it. I'm looking, because when I said, wow, $15,000 to Historic Charleston Foundation, hmm, I wonder what they're giving to St. Philip's Church. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the rector's looking on the heart, I'm telling you right now. If it's any consolation, I do not know what anybody gives, I make that a policy, but the treasurer knows. When we give, why are we giving? Are we giving so that we may be seen by men? Would we give the same amount if they weren't publishing this? If people wouldn't know that we were members of the Gold Leaf Society? Tax deduction to the church too, by the way, so don't let that <laughs> be in any way a deterrent. See, God is not interested simply in what we do. He wants to know why we're doing it. Same thing when it comes to praying. He says, do not be praying so that you can be heard by others. I think it was back in 1850, there was a famous um, 4th of July celebration in Boston. And Ralph Waldo Emerson was there for the occasion. And uh, as they did in those days, any kind of civic celebration... Uh, they would bring some minister from some well-known congregation up to ask the invocation. And this particular minister, I know you find this hard to believe, but this particular minister went on and on and on and on. 
And afterwards, somebody went up to Emerson and they said, what did you think of that invocation? And he said, it was the most eloquent prayer ever offered to a Boston audience. Most eloquent prayer ever offered to a Boston audience. Prayer is supposed to be addressed to God. This one was, but it was aimed at something else. It was aimed at the people. When we pray, how do we pray? Do we pray that we might be heard? Jesus said there are two types of wrong prayer, inadequate prayer, sinful prayer even. The first is what he calls ostentatious prayer. Prayers that are so flowery, so wonderful, but they're really aimed at the Boston audience. Jesus talks about one of those in Luke chapter 18. He talks about a Pharisee who stood up, and I love the way the NIV describes it. A Pharisee, and there was a tax collector, and they're both in the temple, and the Pharisee stands up and he prays, the NIV says, to himself. And he says, oh Lord, I'm so thankful that I'm not like that tax collector over there. For I fast and give my tithe and all of these things. That's ostentatious prayer. Meant to be impressive. People think that if you're going to pray, I've got to pray like Thomas Cranmer with all of these and the thous. God's not interested in those kinds of prayers. It's not to say they're not lovely and beautiful and noble and so forth. But what God is interested in is what's coming out of your heart. It's not enough to honor God with your lips if your heart is far from Him. So ostentatious prayer is not acceptable to God. Repetitious prayer, by the way, is not always acceptable to God. Now, when we talk about repetitious prayer, I don't think what we're necessarily talking about here is liturgical prayer. Because obviously, we repeat our prayers week after week after week. What Jesus is talking about is prayers that are just sort of rolling off your tongue. You just say them without ever thinking about them. Ever heard the expression pitter-patter? The pitter-patter of little feet? How many of you ever heard that expression before? Do you know where that comes from? It comes from the Latin for the first two words of the Lord's Prayer, Pater Noster. And for people who were unfamiliar with Latin when they heard it, that's what it sounded like. Just empty babbling. Pater Noster, Pater Noster, Pater Noster, Pitter Patter, Pitter Patter, Pater Noster, Pater Noster, Pitter Patter, Pitter Patter. That's what God is talking about. Those kinds of prayers that we just sort of run off. Our Father art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know, sometimes I say that to the kids. We'll sit down and we, we, have, we always say the Moravian blessing in our house before um, a, a meal. Come, Lord Jesus, our guest to be, and bless these gifts bestowed by thee. Bless our loved ones everywhere and keep them in thy loving care. And every now and then, I pray with my eyes open. <laughs> the all-seeing eye to see what they're up to. And sometimes you get this. Our Father who art in heaven, come, Lord Jesus, our guest to be. Bless these gifts bestowed by thee. Bless our loved ones everywhere. Keep them in thy loving care. Amen. And I remind them, it's pitter-patter, pitter-patter. God is not interested in it. It's not going through the motions. God is interested in what's going on in the hearts. Jesus says those are the wrong ways to pray. Here's the right way to pray. He said, and this is the Lord's Prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. It's really not the Lord's Prayer, incidentally. This is a pattern for prayer. This is not a prayer that Jesus himself ever prayed. If you want to see the real Lord's Prayer, go to John chapter 17, what is called the High Priestly Prayer. There you get an opportunity to actually see Jesus in prayer for his disciples. But Jesus, what he does is he sets us an example for prayer. In some parts of the church, they don't call this the Lord's Prayer. They call it the Our Father. 
and it contains a series of petitions, six of them in all. And the first one is this, hallowed be your name. The Lord's Prayer begins with worship and acknowledgement of who God is, of His mighty ways and His power on earth. Second part of this is, Thy kingdom come. That is to say, Lord, Your kingdom come. I want to be about Your kingdom. You are the great one. Your name is to be hallowed and respected and honored and worshipped. And it is Your kingdom that we are to be about. Not building our own little kingdoms or fiefdoms. We are to be about Your kingdom. Your kingdom come. And Your will be done. You know, sometimes we say, Thy will be done, but what we really mean is, My will be done. But true prayer is concerned with the glory of God, a worship of God. The coming of His kingdom is the most important thing and the accomplishment of His will. And it's only halfway through the prayer that Jesus shifts to our own particular needs. So the first part of the prayer is all about God. And it's only after we worship God, it's only after we acknowledge that His kingdom is foremost, it's only after we have decided that we want His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, that then we can begin to ask for ourselves. And what do we ask for? First of all, give us our daily bread. Now remember, this was an agrarian culture in those days. They did not have the luxuries that we have today. They lived off the land, and it was a very precarious living. Because when you're living off the land, there are no Piggly Wigglies or, you know, Harris Teeters or Publix that you could go to if you ran out of milk. If your cow stopped producing milk, you were in trouble. If a blight came upon your fields, or if locusts came and devoured them, some sort of pest, a whole community could disappear. And so what are we to ask for? That God might supply our daily needs. What that means is God is not going to give you everything you want. And we shouldn't be asking for everything we want. Tammy Faye Baker used to say, when I ask God for a new car, I tell him what color I want. Well, how shameful is that? Give us our daily bread. That is to say, give us what we need. And anything beyond that, O Lord, that's a blessing and a grace and a mercy from you. Forgive us our debts. In other words, we acknowledge that what? We owe God a debt. We say trespasses, that's fine. Forgive us our trespasses. We're constantly trespassing on God's territory. Forgive us our trespasses. As we forgive those, by the way, who trespass against us. And finally, what? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Some translations say, deliver us from the evil one, say from the evil day. You've heard me talk about the evil day before. What's the evil day? The evil day is when your desires and your opportunities meet. There are times when you have a desire to sin, but not the opportunity to sin. There are other times when you have the opportunity to sin, but not really the desire to sin. The evil day is when the desire and the opportunity meet. So, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, one of the things you will notice about the Lord's Prayer is that the whole first part is about God, and the part that is about us is really not about the things that we think are so important in life, the things that we put all of our time and our energy into. We don't think about God providing our daily bread. We don't even think about that. Not as we're planning our next cruise. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that being wealthy is sinful. 
Some of the people in the Bible were very wealthy and property people indeed. What I am saying to you is that what this does is it puts things in its proper perspective. And it shows us what really matters to God. That's what's so compelling about the Sermon on the Mount. It shows us how we measure up to God and we don't. It shows us who we really are and it shows us that our only hope is Jesus Christ. This is that great mirror that shows us that our, faith is, our face is dirty, but we cannot clean it, but we can go to the one who can cleanse us by his shed blood and make us new and implant within us the power, the wherewithal, the grace by his Holy Spirit to start living a new way as citizens of a new kingdom, as subjects of a new king. Let us pray. Lord, we give you thanks and praise for the Sermon on the Mount. It is powerful. There is more here than we can ever hope to exhaust in terms of its application for our own lives. Help us, Lord, to take these words to heart. In those areas where we fail to measure up, for surely we do, Grant us the grace to seek your face, your mercy, and your forgiveness and the power of your Holy Spirit to amend our lives and to live no longer for ourselves but for you. That when we do the right things, you may see that we are doing them for the right reason. Not for the praise of men, but for the praise of our Father in heaven. That one day, when all shall be made clear, we might hear those blessed words, well done, good and faithful servant. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.